Welcome, friends and fiends. This is your host, film critic and comedian, Nate Wyckoff. And I'm here to tell you about an exciting giveaway that Warner Brothers Discovery and Colton Classic Films LLC has put together to build your 4K Ultra HD film collection on digital. We are giving away four codes which contain digital 4K Ultra HD versions of Rebel Without a Cause, Maltese Falcon, and Cool Hand Luke. These are films that you absolutely must know as a film buff. You can get this code by being one of the lucky four people we pull from our newsletter list. So go to coltonclassicfilms.com slash newsletter and give us your email and your name and we'll sign you up for the newsletter and we will enter you in the competition. That's all you got to do. So please go ahead and do that. The contest ends on April 30th and we will send out the winning codes on May 1st. Thank you so much for being a listener. And here's your episode of Colton Classic Films Podcast. Welcome to Colton Classic. <laughs> Welcome, friends and fiends of the pod, to another episode of Colton Classic Podcast, the podcast where we bring you a pair of films thematically linked, one mainstream and one cult, and talk about them both in detail. I am very excited to talk about this tonight uh, because I think we're going to encounter some different views across the board for these two movies. Uh, the theme for our movies are thrillers after dark. And uh, these both are heavily dark-based films. Uh, and the first one is 2014's Nightcrawler with Jake uh, Gyllenhaal. I always say his name wrong, but I believe it is Gyllenhaal. And then we have uh, 1988 or 89, depending on when he looks, Heart of Midnight with Jennifer Jason Leigh. And these are very, I was going to say they're very different films. They are, but they also, I feel like they actually, sometimes we do pairs and I intentionally pull them because they have a similar theme, but they're radically different features. I feel like if you like one of these movies, you might like both of them. And if you hate one of these movies, you might hate both of them. I'm not sure. We'll find out. But uh, this episode, of course, we'll talk about Nightcrawler, and next week we'll bring you Heart of Midnight to wrap up this theme. So Nightcrawler from 2014 is like a, a reality-based contemporary story uh, about a guy named Lou, uh, Lewis, who is played by Jake Gyllenhaal, who is sort of a con man uh, in a sense, uh, but... I think that's 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 what the description, if you say go on IMDb or the back of the movie, things like that, um, they'll call him a con man. I don't really think that's accurate because a con man implies that he's not giving you what he's saying he's giving you. Um, and while he may lie occasionally, I don't think that's his problem. Uh, but he's a sociopath of sorts, uh, does not seem to understand human behavior or at least interact well with others, um, but is very calculating, very to the point, and the sort of uh, person that you can imagine being a uh, tech guru at the head of a company that is extremely cutthroat, and uh, that pretty much fits. So this movie, and guys, again, if you haven't listened to the pod before, there are spoilers for the plots. I don't think spoilers ever ruin a good movie. It's still a good movie, even if you know it's coming, because you will get wrapped in the story. But if these movies sound like they're up your alley, feel free to stop listening, go watch them, and then come back and see what we have to say, because we will always share some behind-the-scenes info and other stuff with you. So the plot is, this guy is looking for a job. Meanwhile, he's also doing things like stealing chain link fence and assaulting security guards to get away and, and uh, selling them to uh, metal scrapyards. Uh, but he ends up upon a car crash in Los Angeles, near where he lives, apparently. 
and uh, sees a guy jump out of a van with a video camera and starts videotaping it. Um, this is uh, what in the movie is called uh, night crawling, but it's also these people are stringers is what they're called. They are real people. Uh, they will uh, listen to police scanners and things of that nature. And they will try to get to the scene of an accident, a crime, whatever, as quickly as possible to get footage. And then they go directly to the new local news stations to sell that footage to them. Uh, it's a very strange, very quick turnaround market. Um, there is actually a documentary on Netflix you can go check out uh, that, that actually has some ties to this movie about it. But basically, Lewis finds this market, gets himself a cheap camera by stealing a bike and pawning it. And then he's sort of off to the races learning how to do this on his own. And he rises very quickly by essentially breaking the law in ways that are not easily traceable or provable. So he'll enter crime scenes if he gets there um, and try to get footage of things that really you shouldn't be seeing. And he brings them to uh, Rene Russo's character, who is the program manager for uh, a, a late night news um, show. And so she, against the wishes of her coworkers, uh, are, is very excited to have this because it's bringing her a lot of ratings. And he, she's really into the idea of preying on people's sort of xenophobic fears, not so much of foreigners, but of uh, urban crime crawling into the suburbs. Make the people in the suburbs afraid, you will get viewers. So she essentially teaches with just a few lines, this Lewis character who's very smart, what she wants. And so he starts to get that footage. He ends up bringing in uh, another character uh, to help him, who is someone he gets off Craigslist and pays very, very little money, someone who clearly needs the job, um, but is, is not able to get other jobs very well. And he uses him and eventually causing him to die when the character no longer becomes useful or potentially becomes threatening to him. Uh, and this is where the movie sort of, I think, blew a lot of audiences away. Lewis does not get comeuppance. Lewis actually succeeds. The movie ends with his business expanding. Um, and there's a lot to be said about it. There's a lot of things that just a, a verbal description do not share about this movie. The fact that the soundtrack, in my opinion, is this ambient brilliance. It really creates this Southern California mood at night. Um, the, the idea that most of this movie takes place at night is sort of a misnomer. It does, but not all of it. In fact, the biggest scenes don't really happen at night. Um, the biggest scene, one of the climactic scenes being when he witnesses two men leave what appears to be a, a break in and entering with a multiple homicides, a home invasion. He, he doesn't give the footage of the assailants to the police because he wants to track them down himself and essentially create news by having a sting filmed. And he, it works out that way in the most insane, uncomfortable, violent way. So uh, I found this film incredibly tense, um, which is, I think, very much the point. Uh, it is one of those movies where you're sort of like, it's a Lolita film in the way that you're uncomfortable with the lead character very much so, and you know that he's a very problematic uh, villain, essentially, but you also are sort of in awe of his cunning, and you are often rooting for him as well to succeed, 
And so you just have, you're constantly have this push and pull in your head. Uh, you're like, oh, he did it. Or, oh, is it going to get away? Or, oh, is it good? What's going to happen? And then when it happens, you're like, oh, thank God. And you're like, wait, this guy's actually a bad person. Um, at least on the scale that the rest of us socio norms go by. So this is also something to mention. Um, essentially, every major awards uh, service for film elected Jake Gyllenhaal uh, for this role as Lewis, and zero gave it to him. It was a, it was a snub. He's considered one of only about eight. I think eight people. I think it's still eight people to be elected or to essentially be nominated for every major best acting role and get none of them so i don't know what to say about that and also i feel like this was his last really big role um, because this did hit theaters although i think a lot of people didn't watch it because it's sort of it's just a weird film to market because it's not an action movie it's not even really a thriller in the in the sense that there's no killer to stop um it's it's a drama movie that it, it's a crime movie, I guess would be what I would call it. It is a crime film. So I'm going to stop talking for a second. Uh, I'm, of course, Nate Wyckoff, your host, but I'm going to introduce our panelists for this uh, pairing. We have with us longtime contributor Tad Mastriani. How are you doing, Tad? I've asked you once, I've asked you a thousand times. Who are you people? Ah. So, Nathan, well, um, I'm pretty sure that we call these people entrepreneurs. Um, mm -hmm. that is their proper term. And also I, I am, I am understanding that this film was inspired by, um, all the things you went through to get your first camera before you started. Yes, filming. that's absolutely true. Um, I actually, uh, uh, filmed, uh, several of our friends deaths on camera. Um, unfortunately no one wanted to buy any of the footage. Uh, so I had to get us uh, some more photogenic friends and then do that. We're still not um, buying the, the merch. No. <laughs> That was just for that was just for me. Uh, yeah, no. I, and to round out our cast today, we have Mandy Longley. How are you doing, Mandy? Fantastic. I I am full of of vitriol, I guess, for both of these films. So glad you invited me, right? <laughs> you know what? That's why we're here. We're talking about this, and these are both very contentious films. Actually, um, they have. I mean, all you have to do is go online and and look at. Uh, and I'm not even talking about, you know, fan or regular viewer reviews. I'm talking about critical reviews. You will find um, them both extolling these movies as brilliant and uh, damning these movies as amoral uh, garbage films. And there is something exploitative about both of these films, especially Nightcrawler, um, because the entire the entire uh, set setting uh, and and um, plot device that the movie has or is built around is an exploitative service. Um, I think people who are, are stringers will probably say that, well, the news needs to be shown and that's all we do. We provide what's shown. You know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, we're no different than a nature photographer filming a lion taking down a gazelle. Well, that's, I mean, there's certainly an argument to be made on the logical front for that, but most people tend to view humans differently uh, than, than animals that have a, a different, that have a social system we do not recognize. Again, neither for or against this, but the idea, which this film is not afraid to show, of a person carrying a camera and lording it over a dying individual or someone who's in dire need of, of, um, 
medical attention, someone who's been shot, someone who's in a car accident, uh, just to sell the footage uh, once they're carted off either to the morgue or the hospital, uh, is it's, it's distasteful for most of us. Um, and I think that's why uh, film director and writer Dan Gilroy uh, sort of saw this as, oh, wow, this, this is going to be my movie. Uh, and I think that there's value in that for a couple of reasons. One, uh, this is a real job. Uh, hopefully they don't, f they don't alter the crime scene. I think one of the pivotal moments in this movie is when Lewis goes from um, just photographing in a very voyeuristic way uh, the crime scenes to actually moving a body. Uh, we don't know if he's alive or dead, but from a car accident into a better vantage point so he can get a better shot and frame a better shot is a terrifying moment because it's literally the tip of the iceberg. And it's like, I felt like you could tell because this, the film has huge stretches of no dialogue um, and then spurts of very quick, dense dialogue, uh, usually by Jake uh, Gyllenhaal's character because Jake Gyllenhaal's character, um, the words are thrown around all the time. Now the diagnosis of uh, Asperger's syndrome or something on this, on the autism spectrum. And I think those are, you know, I am certainly not a doctor or a psychologist. I cannot use those terms effectively. I cannot diagnose, but this character has these, these symptoms of being unable or, or we wonder unwilling to recognize other characters, emotions, um, or perceive how they're going to react. Oh, uh, I think he knows 100%. That's what makes him so scary. And he true. uses it. And that, I think that's why it kind of maybe falls more into that, um, like, psychopath or... Well, um, sociopath. Like, sociopath, yeah. sociopath well, like, kind of areas. Because he 100% knows. And he explains it to the characters many times in the film. And, like, clearly he's using it to his own advantage. So, you know, sure. like, which it's just like, I felt was very, like, it was brilliant in some ways, but I was also just like, I don't want to spend like an hour and a half with this person. Yeah. And I'm very glad, you know, like I've known people that might, you know, be borderline like this person and uh, that was enough. I don't need, I don't know, like I, you know. Sure. We see it a lot when we yeah. get, um, you know, in business, right? I mean, whenever oh, you yeah, have the sure. CEO of a company come and all of a sudden you're like, oh, this person's not normal in the way that yeah. I like, they don't have the empathy. And his character, the reason I say that, the reason I wonder about the conceptualization of, of, of this, this inability to, to recognize the emotional response someone has, it's not, it's as you said, he's, he's smart enough and sociopathic enough, for, probably, I think inarguably to under to have understood to study very well how his words and actions will be um will be treated and responded to mm -hmm. but there's this there's this anger that a lot of people seem to have um and i think tad will speak to me and manage about the same way whenever you're in a group of um a subculture which we're all several mem members of several right now right especially we're, we run a cult podcast we're in a big one right now uh, you get people who don't fit into the social norm. And sometimes, a lot of times, we all know those people who don't really understand social etiquette and social cues. They don't understand why what they just say or jumping into a conversation might be uh, boorish or, or, or cause an issue or, or stop the conversation altogether or offend someone. But a lot of times, people who, who struggle with that 
seem to, uh, it's, it's like reading lips, right? They don't experience it in the same way other people do, uh, but they recognize it because they see it over and over again. And this character has seemed to do that to such an extent that he can truly manipulate everyone around him as opposed to just baffle them, right? And there's also this anger that we only see, the, the movie's really restrained about showing this anger. We only get one real scene where he lashes out, he breaks his mirror, which side story, Jake Gyllenhaal actually did break the mirror in the scene on accident and cut his hand and had to go for like a four hour surgery with 46 stitches and then return six hours later to the next day of shooting. So there's actually a couple of moments where his hand is hidden behind him a little awkwardly and it's because of that, that wrapping. But he, people who are, it's like a child when they cannot communicate effectively, you get frustrated and that leads to anger. And so I felt like this character had a really deep well of anger at people who could be normal. And then, uh, and then has used his uh, intelligence, which is clearly separate from the emotional recognition and feelings that, that the people around him have to manipulate them in a way that is a sadistic gratification because he actually says he has a great line when he's talking to his subordinate um after his subordinate has kind of gone off on him after he gets he gets promised 50 percent of this big reward for the home invaders which is twenty five thousand uh, dollars it would be his cut and uh jake Jonal's character doesn't want to give it to him, but he has him over a barrel, so he gives it to him. And then that doesn't seem to be the real deal breaker. Um, what actually seems to be the deal breaker is when his subordinate then is like, "Man, you just you just got to treat people like people, like you know, like not a job." And like, and he goes off on him a little bit, which from someone watching who is not afflicted such as as Lewis's character is. We're like, oh, that's got to be so cathartic. Like, we wanted to say that to bosses all the time. If somebody does something, if somebody's a total hard ass all the time, and then they finally do something respectful, you're like, this, you just want to say, thank you, this, just do more of this. But that's what seems to be the breaking point for mm -hmm. Jason Lowell's character. That's when he's like, nope, I don't have power anymore. And so that's not going to work. This will no longer function this way. I'm going to have to do something about you. And we get that great line where he's like, did you ever think that uh, I do understand people? I just don't like people. And the idea, essentially the idea of hurting them gives me gratification because I don't like them so much. And that's a terrifying moment, right? Because he's essentially set up a gunfight to go off with civilians in the way and officers and it ends terribly. Um, and so it's just a really terrifying character. To me, I look at things like um, Joaquin Phoenix's Joker role. And um, that, that came up a lot this time because of course that's another case where we have a character that their inner workings, we only can see them by how they behave. And that's not always clear. I feel this was a much stronger job and this is not knocking Joker, but I, I felt like I got so much more into this character's mind and it's so much more unnerving that way than I did Joker's because the Joker character is a victim. He is a victim through and through. Whereas Dan Gilroy with the script for this movie had thought about backstories for this character and decided to completely excise them from the script because he did not want 
the audience to be set up to feel sympathetic towards this character. Um, and it works to me. It absolutely works because this is the most, this is, this is Baron Zemo from the Marvel Cinematic Universe without any of the charm. All of the charm is removed. Um, he's not, you know, Lewis isn't witty. He's, he can fake charm, but it's so transparent in the fakery that it's clearly an act. It's someone performing and it doesn't go past the, the eyes, right? It doesn't go past the face. Um, and I, I, I think it's terrifying. And this is one of those movies, um, before we started recording, we were talking about uh, uh, a certain film, which we'll get to in the future. But my issue, one of my issues was, is I had to stop midway through and then watch the second half at another time. And it destroyed the flow for me. I was no longer in the same headspace that the beginning of the movie had gotten me into to follow through the rest. And this was one of those movies where something came up. It was a leak in the house. It was not planned. And I actually had to stop this movie and I couldn't finish the second half, which is really when it ramps up till the next day. And I thought this is going to kill it for me because the movie does so much to establish atmosphere to have like between the, the ambient soundtrack, the cityscapes, um, the, the characters who not a single character in this movie communicates effectively with one another. Um, all of that stuff. I'm like, it's just not going to be the same. And maybe it wasn't the same, but I was blown away how much that tension just was like shoved back in my face when I stepped into it. Um, and I think that speaks to how uncomfortable this movie made me. And I think that's, I think you mentioned it, Mandy, too. It's like, I don't want to spend time with this person. This person is truly upsetting. And yet, not once does he on film murder anyone. Uh, directly there's no you know interestingly enough the opening scene is kind of upsetting right away and was a very strong choice because in the opening scene there's a train going by and we see uh jake jonal's character cutting the uh the the chain link fence from around the train tracks and a security guard pulls up and jake jonal has like a crappy old tercel um and I'm looking at Tad because Tad used to have a crappy ultra cell. drivers unite. <laughs> and and, uh, and the, the guard is not having any of his bullshit. He's like, what are you doing? It's like, essentially, I know you're stealing metal. Just, you know, like, what? give me your license and registration. Give me all this stuff. And Jill character has this whole, like, instant, like, you see the face change when he has to interact with someone. And he interacts with him. And then he ends up sucker punching him. And they fight pretty viciously but we see it from a distance and then we don't see what happens all we know is that jake Gyllenhaal's character is later on driving with like 100 100 yards or something crazy or 50 yards whatever of chain link fence in his back seat we don't know what happened to that security guard we don't know but we but we're told right away this character's capability uh of, for violence and yet we see so little of it through the remainder of the film that it's a different kind of violence. It's not a rage that he lets out. He's so controlled and he even uses that word several times about other people not controlling themselves um, that it, it, he truly is like the mastermind of the scenario and he doesn't understand. And if you think he has a very small, narrow view of the world, like how is he going to make this business succeed? He literally was inside an active crime scene filming and he's going to get arrested. And he, he talks his way out of it. 
because he's thought it through. Um, what did you guys think of the role of the internet in this movie? Because we really don't see him on the internet that much, just once or twice. He's on his computer several times, uploading footage and naming it. Um, but we learn that he studies online. That's what he does. He spends a huge amount of time on the computer. He takes, you know, Khan Academy classes. He takes these things. He reads all the time. And it, it gives him sort of this crazy insight into into the world that he's trying to break into both the news world and this, this, uh, um, voyeuristic, uh, stringer system. And, uh, I feel like it's a very contemporary thing. Like this, it feels like this movie could have been a French movie in the seventies, except for the internet would not have worked. And that literally is a kind of a linchpin for this movie to work to me. Um, I don't know. Did you guys have any thoughts on that when it was happening or, or afterward, because it really is a modern thing in there that, I don't know, could it enable some something? We think of the positives of online education, but people yeah. who don't have outside interactions, what kind of yeah. skill sets and knowledge and how is it affecting them to have the knowledge without the transference from another person? Well, I mean, if you... Yeah, I don't know. Like, he reminded me a lot of, like, the Goodwill Hunting character who was, like... He like got all his knowledge like from the library, but like not from going to classes and interacting with a professor or for, from peers. And he could like throw the information at someone and be like, "Oh, I understand you, and I can watch your whatever." Because uh, I see you're like a freshman or a sophomore or whatnot. Because I've read the books. Um, I think he had that anger as well, mm -hmm. like as the detachment. And it kind of reminded me of that. Like every time, um, like he was this character was like talking about the psychology and like understanding people's motivations and what they do and like the business aspects of like the interactions with people like really reminded me a lot of that um anyway go ahead ted the uh, the character himself says it you know the knowledge is out there for anyone who actually wants to go out to get it and i'm paraphrasing but I, I earned two degrees myself entirely online because I don't actually like classroom settings, largely because it wastes my time. Um, it's much simpler to learn. When you, when you just want to learn something, sometimes the best way to do it is to simply go out and do it. That's how I got where I am now. And absolutely, the only thing that he can't learn on his own, well, actually, I'm wrong because that's what the movie shows us, is he learns how to understand people by going out and working with people he may he may not like them but you see throughout the movie he quickly learns how to which people he can manipulate which is largely people who are transactional minded mm hence -hmm. his interactions with renee russo she's a very transactional person and he's a transactional person he absolutely understands like you want something i have something and it's all everything is a negotiation and as and it's down to who has the most leverage and then when he doesn't have the leverage that's when he lashes out for sure and we get i think that's really and actually you said the movie shows he can learn it i think it's interesting because in a way he can't learn it but he can manipulate it he, he learns how to manipulate it not participate in it right and so it's a weird outside looking in situation and that gives him that cold distance that's so terrifying to us because thinking of it's it's like the idea of um it's like watchmen with dr manhattan right dr manhattan is a terrifying character because 
the the idea is that he can make decisions based on eventual outcome and logic that would that are are terrible to us right like the suffering that that could be caused immediately would eventually lead to uh peace but that's too much of a cost for those of us living in it right and for someone like that he doesn't have that he's not tethered to it he sees it as exactly like you said a transaction and Dan Gilroy had an interesting idea as he was making this movie. And this is his directorial debut, which blew my mind because he comes from a theater family uh, and and he obviously, he has relatives. He's married to Rene Russo, that is his wife. Um, And he has lots of ties to the industry and works with many people uh, that are his family. But this is a directorial debut that knew exactly what it was doing, whether or not you as an audience like it or not was sort of irrelevant, right? Like this is a case where they had a, he had a story and a vision to show. And I feel like he showed it and said, well, this is it. Look at it if you want. And of course he knew that whether like it or not, there's sort of something about the voyeuristic nature. It's hard to look away. Um, I, right, but he had a running theme there, Nate, isn't it? Right, right, exactly. He had an interesting thing he said too, which I liked. Uh, and you mentioned Renee Russo's character is also transactional um, because she really doesn't care about the news or doing the journalistic integrity thing. She wants the views. She wants the the network spot to succeed. She doesn't care about the actual quality of the news, uh, and she knows viewers will watch graphic, scary things. Well, Dan Gilroy wanted it to to be that essentially. Lewis is not, he's not charming, but his transactional logic and his, his manipulative meaner is more like an infection and it infects those that he interacts with. And we sort of see that right with his, um, his, his partner becomes uh, tethered in. And then when he doesn't want to be tethered in, he's not a strong enough force to break free, which was intentional from the very beginning. Um, And with Rene Russo, he has to, she's a strong person, but he has to get her hard on all fronts. And that's one of the most unnerving things in this movie is the quid pro quo relationship, the blackmail relationship that she, that he puts her in to have sex with him, which we never see. In fact, we don't see them touch on camera except to shake hands once, I think. Um, and that's, that's crazy. Uh, but I mean, he has her career. He threatens her career because he builds her up to this point where if she doesn't get the service he's providing, which only someone presumably who's unethical could get, then she's going to fall lower than she was when he found her because now there are eyes on her and this station and et cetera. So it's a really, it's a manipulation thing. And what's most troubling to me out of the whole thing is how it's not that he's succeeding at the end. It's that people around him like Rene Russo's character are happy right like she's actually giddy at this and she's being used perhaps in the most upsetting way that people can be used for sexual favors right like in our society that seems to be the most unnerving thing uh, is sexual impropriety and that's happening yet he's his transactional uh offerings are working in the way that he says he expected them to and we get that again when he orchestrates his partner's murder by being shot by the guy running from the police he tells him he's dead and to go film him and of course he's not dead he gets shot and as he's dying 
he he explains to him, I couldn't do this because I lost the bargaining power. You would have you pulled this over on me to get more money and you would have done it again. And he's like, tell me you would you would not have done it again. And he says he doesn't say I wouldn't have done it. He says, I don't know, which that's as much an admission. Right. And to think he's literally dying because of this man. And he's he can't even just fib. For the sake of, you know what I mean? Like that's this control and this power thing. Um, it was wild. Uh, but we're approaching the end of this. So I'll let you guys get your last words in with your recommendations or not recommendations. Tad, would you recommend Nightcrawler 2014 to viewers? If so, why and who? I would absolutely recommend this, especially to anyone in a corporate environment, because you're going to deal with people like this a whole lot. And you're going to learn that if you put yourself in a position where you don't have that much to lose, or if you don't really need or if they don't need your attention, you can avoid these people entirely in your life. And it's fantastic when you can learn the warning signs. Um, this, yeah, the, I had a lot of uh, Joker vibes from this largely because uh, of, of, of just that first 20 minutes, just watching him alone in his apartment, kind of like in his own little world. Um, I actually felt this was more effective. I agree with you because the, Joker, I think you and I grew up with, was more on the sociopathic scale and much less on the victimization sort of. I don't even know what what um, Walking Phoenix's Walking Phoenix's Joker would have been classified as, um, perhaps schizophrenic. Yeah, but so, um, something something that's as you as you said, he he doesn't come across as a villain. He really doesn't. Um, he, even though he murders people, he comes across as a victim. He comes across as um, uh, you, you can empathize. You cannot empathize with this character. No. But you can understand it absolutely. I place this in the same category as Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. <laughs> yeah. like those, those, there are types of people that are going to get a very different message from this movie depending on what your personality type is. This is absolutely a movie where you can see the cutthroat mentality of, yeah, you know what? I'm going to go out. I am going to make something of myself. And then there's the other people who are like, these are terrible people. You're both correct. Yeah, and he uses the term, and they use it when I guess when they were pitching the movie and talking about the movie as well. But hungry, right? Like Lewis's character is hungry. They talk about the coyote. They almost named the film Coyote because of that. Um, they even have a couple of shots of nature shots. I think of, there's wolves at one point, um, just in B-roll essentially um, feeding, and it's that. Uh, and he lost weight, twenty pounds, in order to have this sort of gaunt, hungry look. And I, as someone who, hey. I'm a comedian. I have to sell myself all the time. I often don't succeed. And this is, I run a podcast. Podcasts are notoriously hard to uh, cultivate. And it's, you. I see him and no, I don't like him and I don't relate to him, but I sort of envy him in some ways. In the same way that I can imagine someone who thinks like him may at his, at his lesser points, envy people who can function without forethought in our society. Um, I envy that single-minded drive uh, because it's getting him where he needs to go. And we see in the real world that that does occur. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we hear this and there's crazy cases of it where this isn't new information to our world, right? Like um, the uh, people, you know, uh, certain sects of monks in, in various religions, especially Christianity, uh, castrating themselves in order to remove the sexual desire uh, or at least ability and focus 100% of that energy somewhere else, right? Like we know that divvying energy divides our, 
the likelihood of progressing in a direction we want to go in. Um, so his character has one direction. He finds it, he picks it, he goes. Uh, and that's billboard. Like, I mean, this is one of those films for once where I actually see epi- uh, incidences of symbolism. There's a mm-hmm. billboard up in the corner that says focus. It's just a woman wearing glasses. And I'm like a little bit on the nose, but that well, may just because I've watched a lot of movies and kind of know how it works. It's like, yeah, I get it. I get it. I understand. Well, and we also, it's an interesting you mention that because it's also a very strong reference to the great Gatsby, yeah. um, the great Gatsby, which is uh, another story of the sort of the, the questionable moral nature of the American dream, right? The Americanized society. Um, uh, they see they're, they're the eyes forever looking over the horrors that men do. And it's what they talk about in Great Gatsby is it's literally a billboard of eyeglasses for an eyeglass doctor that's likely long over, but it's just a remnant, but it's sort of this all seeing eye. So Mandy, would you recommend this movie? I'm gonna hazard to say no, but would you recommend it to why and to who? I think I will surprise you. I think that this is a really well-crafted movie. The acting was amazing. Yeah. Um, it had really great uh, problematic interactions, gaslighting and manipulation yeah. and everything. Yes. And I think Tad makes a good point that, you know, like that's a good way for other people to learn like the warning signs um, and red, maybe red flags of certain people. And, I don't know if this teaches you how to avoid them or how to call out those people or step away, but because uh, a lot of these people get wrapped up <laughs> in what right. he's doing. Um, but I mean, as an educational tool or just like even maybe like you watch this and it like reminds you of someone in your life. But <laughs> I think a lot of people watch this you know? and maybe see parents right? or things right? like that. Yeah. Or, like, or love. Oh, yeah. like he did this to other people. Like maybe there's not something wrong with me that this happened to me with someone else, like a boss or like, I don't know, like a friendship gone wrong or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, oh, okay. Someone like, named yeah. Jeff who didn't show up to the podcast. <laughs> oh, wow. um, I'm just, I will actually say this as well. Uh, I just want to, before I forget, uh, Riz Ahmed is the, plays the, um, the assistant Rick uh, of Louise. And he's of course phenomenal. And actually yeah. Jeff, who wasn't able to make the podcast tonight, he uh, he heavily recommends uh, Amazon Prime video, Sound of Metal, which uh, which stars Riz Ahmed. So definitely check that out. He does a great job in this movie of being complicit, but constantly on edge in a way that only a, a certain type of uh, apathy and world weary beaten downness really can cause, which I think a lot of us kind of recognize after having spent over a year at home uh, with political and social and medical turmoil. I think all of these things really resonate in a way that they they didn't as much. And I think we can actually see this sort of world weary danger grit in our cinema a lot right now. Because, and I think it's directly related be- to how we've been living the past year and a half. I mean, look at the movies right now. We have um, Those That Wish Us Dead with uh, Angelina Jolie, very gritty, you know, uncomfortable. We have um, Wrath of Man, which we'll be do, uh, which which we did a mini-sode on uh, that you can listen on uh, by Guy Ritchie uh, with Jason Statham. Very un, uh, sort of unrelenting gray bleakness. Uh, we're seeing that now, and I think this is sort of 
it fits in that that mode and it's also a reprieve this movie is one of those where if you really like drive with ryan goslin the sort of night neon um hotline miami vibe uh but are willing to dive deeper into something that's less action and more disturbing reality this movie is right up your alley like i would absolutely watch drive in this movie in a two-pack any day of the week and that that says a lot about me um but but it's, it's it's certainly worth it so i will recommend this movie wholeheartedly i think dan gilroy really created a, a film that is kind of a work of art it really is it's not just entertainment sometimes it isn't entertainment it's actually uncomfortable um, but when you walk away as tad said the joker vibes are there this i think is something that and I'm sorry, Todd Phillips, I like you as a director, but I am going to do this little dig at you. I think this is above and beyond the scope that you were at the time of making Joker aware was possible because this is an intellectual character study. Joker is an acting character study. Joker is about Joaquin Phoenix's ability to play this victim who is pushed so far that it, he goes to great lengths uh, to sort of remake his his small world in to his own desires this movie is about someone who is so incompatible with our real world that he instead is able to work around it and get what he wants the way that we would tell someone to think smarter you know instead of working harder work smarter that which is an insane thing to say but when you, Mandy is an engineer, I'm sure has heard that before. And it's ridiculous. Not in our world. Right, same dad with IT, right? Um, English, it doesn't happen quite so much. We actually look at sentences like that. I'm like, that's gibberish. Uh, I'm gonna have you diagram that sentence. So, <laughs> but anyway, so I recommend this movie wholeheartedly. Um, it's one of those where it's one of the most disturbing films I've ever watched, but the violence is minimal and incredibly realistic. There is no extreme blood. Um, some, anyone who's been in a minor car collision that's had some lacerations or broken bones or anything, you will see, this is what it looks like. You know, uh, it's just crazy how confined they, they stayed to realism uh, while dealing with something that is truly outlandish. Uh, and shows us how real it actually is. So yeah, I see still like, I know that Tad mentioned um, when Gary Glenn Ross mm -hmm. as one of those uncomfortable films with unlikable characters that this might kind of goes in that pack. And I would say it also reminded me, uh, it'll stay with me a while. I will remember this movie. And I think that's like a good reason to recommend it as well. It is like, it is like an art piece. Like it will stay with you. Like you're going to remember this and think about it, I think more than just an entertainment action flick. Um, another movie that I feel would kind of go in this vein, but obviously not anywhere close to this, um, like content is uh, House of Sand and Fog. Like that is a movie I saw. With Jennifer Connelly and Ben Kingsley, yeah. yep. Based very unlikable characters, very mm -hmm. difficult to watch. I think I had to watch that like in three sittings. I had to like stop and walk away from it because it was like too real. And I was just like, man, these people are pissing me off. And like, this is tragic. And like, there's no good way out of it. Like you see everyone's perspective and it's terrible. Um, and that movie has stuck with me for a long time. So I think that, that this is definitely one of those movies in, that's in that vein. Like if you are a movie lover and you want a movie that's going to make you think and make you remember it, like Nightcrawler is definitely going to do that. 
here's a here's an interesting side story about House of Sand and Fog, a personal story. So I have my MFA from the Southern New Hampshire uh, University. There, uh, brick and mortar. Uh, uh, it's it's not online, but it is a uh, what do they call it? Uh, limited residency, um, low residency. Um, and yeah, Andrew, so. Uh, I'm going to talk slowly for you then. I'm just kidding, everyone. Seriously, I worked for the online education school. Anyway, um, Andrew Dubois III is, uh, his father is very famous as well, a writer, but he's the novelist who wrote House of Sand and Fog. And he's, uh, uh, I believe, a Massachusetts uh, townie resident, essentially. And he wrote a book called Townie, which is terrifying, um, based off a lot of his experiences. But he wrote that book. And I met him several times, uh, but, but, Primarily, I met him at one of our residencies. He came and did a little talk. And being from uh, the Boston area, and this is not a dig, but he drank, which is totally fine after hour, after everything at a, at a low residency. That's kind of what happens. Um, and I don't know why, and I'm sure I'm not the only one this has happened to, but he really liked me. And I don't know why, but he hugged me, I think, four times in within 15 minutes. Um, just as like, ah, this guy, like this guy gets it. Like, y'all, this is so great. I love you, man. I really appreciate it. Like it was the, it was one of the nicest moments, but also I don't know that he knew my name. Uh, and I certainly don't think he would know me by seeing me. Uh, but very nice guy, a very talented writer. House of Sand and Fog is a very hard to read book. But as you said, like the movie, very good. I uh, recommend Townie. If you really want to know what happens in uh, sort of the, um, Mm, Haverhill, uh, Lowell areas of Massachusetts, what it's actually like. So that's going to wrap up this discussion on Nightcrawler. I'll leave it with my personal anecdote hanging. Uh, listen next week for our episode where we talk about the pairing to Nightcrawler, 1988's Heart of Midnight with Jennifer Jason Lee and lots of other people uh, that, that you'd recognize um, but would be surprised to see in this movie. So we will talk to you then. Make sure you subscribe, uh, rate, and review our podcast wherever you get your podcasts, like Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, et cetera. And visit us online at coltonclassicpodcast.com and email us at coltonclassicpodcast.gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at coltonclassicpodcast for all sorts of cool stuff. We do giveaways. We have tons of episodes to choose from and you can watch us on YouTube as well. Thank you so much and play us out as always. Here is The Chud with All About Evil. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Colton Classic Podcast. This podcast is important to me, but what's more important are the rights, privileges, and freedom from violence of everyone in this country and in this world. And that means supporting Black Lives Matter. If you'd like to make a donation, please go ahead and visit coltonclassicpodcast.com where we have a list of places you can donate and help out. And please stay safe.